Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. That's right, the Michael Duke Show, broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station, and or translator, and around the world at MichaelDukeShow.com on the internet. Hello, how are you? Welcome to, welcome to Hump Day, the, uh, the one day a week that uh, is so good because you could, it's right in the middle, you could see the weekend from here, you could smell it coming. And uh, we appreciate you being part of the show today as we jump into it with uh, with both feet. Uh, we've got a full we got a full uh, boat today. Today we're going to be uh, joined here in hour one by Ben Carpenter, who is going to uh, come on board with us and uh, and give us a chat about uh, the priorities of the legislature, what the legislature is doing. Uh, I mean, the other day he spoke up on the floor of the House, and I don't know if you got a chance to uh, see that, but he laid out some pretty, I mean, I thought some pretty straightforward stuff where he basically said, hey, look, um, we've got to come up with a fiscal plan and we've got to do it this year. And we got to, got to, you know, we kind of got to put aside all of our issues and our problems and uh, just get working on it. And uh, that's uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of the good stuff right there. So uh, Ben Carpenter is going to come in and talk with us about that and more. That's coming up this morning on the program in hour one. We'll be chatting with him here in just a few minutes after we get through uh, a few of these headlines. And then we're going to be diving into it in hour two with Donna Arduin and Joe Geldhoff. Uh, who are going to come in and talk with us about the permanent fund uh, dividend, uh, and uh, they're going to take up, they're going to stake up some of these, uh, uh, stake out some of these positions from like the permanent fund defenders and stuff like that. So uh, we're excited to hear what they have to say. That's going to be coming up here uh, in just a bit, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that in hour two. Uh, so meanwhile, let's uh, jump into it with. Uh, Let's jump into it with the headlines. Now, let me tell you something that I <laughs> here's here's what I'm talking about with the headlines. It just doesn't seem to be again a whole lot. I, I talked about this a bit yesterday, um, but here we are into the fourth week of the legislative session, and, n- and nothing is really going on. Um, again, we've talked a little bit about the whole Eastman thing and the Oath Keepers thing. Uh, there's been uh, a little discussion. They're talking about uh, holding hearings on the firing of the uh, uh, the firing of the head of the permanent fund board. They're going to spend a hundred grand on that, but nothing really else is going on uh, th- that I could see. I mean, nothing that's making headlines. Nothing that's really just jumping out at us. Uh, maybe there's some things going on behind the scenes, but for the most part, it's just it, nothing. A whole lot of a whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing right now. So we're going to uh, 
So we're gonna we're gonna peel through some of these different stories that are out there uh, that are on the fringes. But I'll just say that this is what I'm struck by. This is what I'm struck by right now. As you look at what is coming, I mean, it just seems to be a whole lot of. How do I want to put this? A whole lot of poking going on back and forth between uh, you know various political factions. I mean, Anchorage is the perfect example. Right now, you know, you've got the Anchorage Assembly and the mayor's office and the punditry on both sides just seems to be basically cracking back and forth against each other. Um, Must Read Alaska has got a handful of stories that are basically all us versus them. And I'm not saying that some of that is not going on. But, God, it makes me tired. I'm just reading this stuff. It's just like, I mean, first and foremost, it makes me very, very grateful that I don't live in Anchorage. Right? Because those folks down there are <laughs> crazy, man. You got you got an assembly that is referring to um, the members of the administration as a bunch of fools. They call the mayor a clown. I mean, this is in public broadcast. They're doing stuff like this. And the mayor, on the other hand, it just seems to be on full-on veto mode, pretty much anything. And so it looks like the new policy is going to be just to override and and duke this out. I mean, nothing. I don't think anything is going to change until the upcoming election, uh, which luckily, uh, I mean, I guess luckily or unluckily, uh, is in April. I mean, Anchorage, again, one of the, it's one of the weird things that I discovered when I moved down to the South Central area is that Anchorage is, uh, you know, they're the only place in the state that's got a an election that's out of step with the with the rest of the state. All the other municipalities are having their, you know, their elections in October and November, and uh, and Anchorage has got theirs in April, which I guess for right now we just it's good because we don't have to put up with this. I guess for much more. Uh, I guess it, that also depends, of course, on who comes out for whom and who wins. They got five assembly seats open right now. Five assembly seats. Uh, they're going to be up there, and they got people like Forrest Dunbar and um and uh, uh, Felix uh, and 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 ever you know all these other folks that are going to be up for uh, for re-election. And the question is, do the do the uh, uh, do the folks in Anchorage are are they paying attention enough outside of the you know outside of the of the I, I guess I don't want to say fringe elements, but outside of the combatants. The political combatants on this thing, do, do the middle of the road people in Anchorage are they even paying attention to this, or are they just you know flipping the channel when this kind of stuff comes on? Because it just seems like every story is you know one more showdown between the assembly and the mayor, or the mayor and the assembly, or the administration and the body politic. I mean, it's it's crazy. But if this is a microchasm of what's going on in the legislature, which in and of itself is a microchasm of what's going on at the national level. And sometimes I just wonder what the people in the middle think. You know, the people who are not partisan, the people who are not, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't wear the donkey or the elephant on their lapel or on their sleeve or wherever. They're not beholden to labels. They're just like... At some point, somebody got to be like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this stuff. And yeah, I mean, it, when I say the people in Anchorage are crazy, I mean, dang, people. 
Uh, how how long do we ha- how long do you are you going to put up with this kind of bickering back and forth? Do you swing the pendulum back to the middle? Because we've seen that where the the pendulum on the, the political spectrum in some of these different bodies, it's you know they swing one way or the other. They swing a little bit to the right, or they swing a little bit to the left, or a lot to the right, or a lot to the left. But they eventually they um, you know they equalize and they uh, uh, and they kind of even out. So is this is that coming? Is that going to be part of what's going on here in this next election cycle? I mean, some of us, I mean, I can only hope so. I mean, hey, great. We got another great news day with all these crazy stories about what's going on and how everybody's calling everybody else's names and 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 nobody, you know, nobody can get anything done. And, and uh, you know, great. That's all going on. But when are we just going to get some work done and get back to the, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I guess it's a I guess it's a news day. Um. I guess it's it, it's good for the news cycle in that regard, and it makes up for the fact that everything's quiet in Juno. But you know, I, this this goes back to my philosophy that I think most people most people just want to be left alone. You know, in their heart of hearts, most people probably support smaller, more limited government, even if they don't use those phrases, even if they don't use that terminology. They support smaller, more limited government because in their heart of hearts, they really just want to be left alone. And, I mean, they understand their own budgeting problems. They understand their own money issues. And they don't really, they're probably not really interested in giving more money to the state because, you know, they've got their own issues. And so in their heart of hearts, probably the majority of people are, you know, again, for smaller, more limited government, not taking more money from them. But more than anything else, just wanting to be left alone to stay out of the madness. And um, and I, I keep thinking that one of these days during one of these election cycles, there's going to be a bit of a blowback on that. And they're going to basically just oust everybody. Left, right, center, doesn't matter. And maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. Maybe maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe it's going to be. You know, maybe it's just going to be I don't know. But everything, it just gets politicized. And it's, it's just astonishing to watch. Um, and then you get the, all the lawyers involved. And uh, no offense to lawyers, not that I think most of them would take any offense because most of them are not human. But I mean, <laughs> I've got some lawyer friends who make jokes like that. But I mean, you know, we see what's going on. Like, for example, this, this is the story that jumped out at me today. The Anchorage Superior Court has heard oral arguments in the lawsuit that was filed last month by four college students under the guidance of Jaina Lindemuth, who is, boy, she's nothing more than a political animal, right? I mean, she's the former attorney general under Bill Walker. And the legal dispute comes from the fact that they swept money out of the Higher Education Investment Fund and they put it back into the Constitutional Budget Reserve. Now, again, there's a, there's a constitutional prohibition on dedicated funds in this state. And so they don't make them dedicated funds. They make them designated funds, which there is a big difference. I'm, I'm sure somewhere in there, someone will explain to you what the big difference is between dedicate, dedicated and designated. But they take all these monies and they put it aside and they were going to, you know, this endowment fund was supposed to be generating money, which it was. But they swept $422 million out of the fund to go back into the CBR because that's what the Constitution says you're supposed to do. 
1990, they, the, the voters established the Constitutional Budget Reserve, which was supposed to help out smooth over the highs and lows of budget shortfalls, supposed to have a three-quarters vote of the House and the Senate to approve spending from it. Anything borrowed from it was supposed to go back. The constitutional provision says that every dollar taken must be repaid. And not just, you know, not just, t- here's the thing. The argument that Linda Muth is using is that, well, because the money that established the fund, the higher education fund, didn't come from the earnings or from the constitutional budget reserve, that you can't use that to pay it. I mean, all money is green, right? That's a Donna. That's one of my favorite quotes from Donna Arduin. All money is green. So even though the money to establish the fund didn't come from the, the uh, excuse me, the Alaska Housing Finance Corporate, just because they didn't come from the constitutional budget reserve doesn't mean that it can't be used to repay it. Because again, if there's no dedicated funds, if there's no, then how could all that, but again, they're going to argue it out. We don't want, you know, we can't have dedicated funds, but we've got designated funds. And now people are, and the argument, of course, is that people are counting on it. Students are counting on this. The, the students are counting on this money. And, and you know, the, the Alaska medical students, we won't have any doctors if we don't do it. And we, we need to make sure that this is a dependable annual appropriation. Luckily for us, this is all a constitutional issue. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, the judge says. Judge Adolf Zeman is the uh, judge. He's, he's going to get a ruling to us before, on or before February 22nd, but it could be appealed to the Alaska Supreme Court. But it's pretty clear that the Constitution, I mean, what is really involved here. This is not a statutory thing. So I guess we'll all be waiting around to see what happens on this. But I, for one, am hoping that. Uh, you know, that maybe the Constitution can reign supreme on this. I'm, I mean, just asking. Maybe we could follow the actual law. Hashtag follow the damn law. All right. Well, um, we're going to be back with more here in a moment. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show continues. Ben Carpenter up next. You're over common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break. Um, hold on a second here while I... Hold on a second here while I fix this. Well... Hey, look at that. I fixed it. All right. Uh, okay, so we got everything squared away. Representative Ben Carpenter is on the line with us here, and we're going to be um, uh, we're going to be talking about the legislature, the financial situation, the budget deficit, the lack of movement. I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to talk with Ben on. Uh, I expect this will be a uh, I expect that this will be a high speed ride uh, uh, here in the next uh, forty minutes or so. Uh, and so buckle up for that. Don't forget to share the show. Uh, don't forget to uh, like and follow the show page. And uh, if you're on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the bell to make sure you receive notifications every morning. I don't know what happened this morning. I tried to start the show uh, as I normally do, and 
everything immediately crashed. I couldn't even get on YouTube this morning, so I had to restart everything. So we got a little bit of a late start this morning, but that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do what we're doing, and uh, we're all up and running now. Anyway, so appreciate that. We got about thirty people in the chat room on Facebook and another dozen or so on YouTube, uh, and so we will uh, we'll just keep we're just gonna keep growing these communities on both sides and give folks the opportunity to participate. In all those ways. Don't forget, you can also drop me an email. The email address is me at MichaelDukeshow.com. That's M-E at MichaelDukeshow.com. If you would like to uh, uh, be part of it there and, uh, you know, without having to, you know, join the chat rooms or call in or whatever else, feel free to uh, feel free to drop us a note there and we'll try and make sure we check it throughout the morning. And of course, uh, the phone lines are going to be open here in a little bit at 433-3150-433-3150 as we uh, get things uh, ready to rock and roll. Okay, um, let's see. We're just a couple minutes out here. Let's uh, go over and check in on uh, Representative Carpenter to see if he's eaten all of my virtual donuts in the virtual green room. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, good morning. I was told I had to stay away from the donuts. Uh, they're all fat-free, calorie-free. I mean, they taste delicious. <laughs> they taste as delicious as you want them to be with absolutely no guilt. That's the best part of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, by the way, nicely said, well, good speech on the floor the other day, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but, I mean, uh, maybe you can hear the frustration in my voice, Ben, and we're going to get into this on the radio here in a second. But, um, I mean, it's... Should should I be ashamed of myself for being so frustrated that here we are in week four of the session and there's literally nothing happening? Or is is that, I mean, that's from my perspective. As a legislator, how does that feel? Uh, so my, my understanding is that they set about a six-week um, goal to get done with the budget subcommittee process. And so that was their, and again, that wasn't something that was announced, but what I can gather from other committee chairs and our subcommittees, that's kind of what they're shooting for. So I think there was a plan. Um, it just wasn't a speedy one. It just wasn't a speedy one. So things are happening. It's just, we're not really hearing about it. So we'll, we'll get the details from you on that here as we come back to you. So hold the line, Ben, we'll be right back to you here. Um, and we will come back to that uh, tomorrow on the program. State Senator Mike Shower is going to be joining us. And on Friday, uh, I'm working on another guest from reason magazine, um, to have J.D. Tuchilli back. He's been writing some great stuff, especially about the president's speech last week where, I mean, you remember where I dissected it, where he said we couldn't own cannons and we couldn't own this and, we, you know, the founding fathers never intended us to be able to buy weapons of war and all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, and J.D.'s going to talk a little bit about that because it's all nonsense. It's That's all nonsense and lies. And it's been refuted, not just by little radio talk show host by me, but, you know, people like PolitiFact and other people have... Uh, have uh, have have rated this and debunked a lot of the things that the president continues to use. So we're going to try and get JD Tuchili on next week to discuss that as uh, this week as well. All right, coming up on it, we're going to jump back into it. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like and share the show. Like and follow the show page. Hit the subscribe. Ring the bell. Let's do it.
All right, we're continuing now, jumping into it with our first guest, Representative Ben Carpenter, the GOP state rep from District 29. He comes on board with us this morning to talk about uh, the session, the fiscal plan, the, the, the long-term fiscal strategy, which we don't seem to have here, um, and, uh, and, and everything else. I was just talking with uh, Representative Carpenter during the break, and I basically asked him, I said, you know, am I out of line on this, but it just seems like... Uh, you know, I'm so frustrated because we're four weeks in and really nothing's happening. And Ben, you said that there there are some things happening behind the scenes. Apparently, there was a plan, and not a printed plan or anything, but kind of the rumors going around that they wanted to get stuff done by, well, the six-week mark. We're going over halfway here now. I mean, what's really happening in the legislature right now? Well, we're into uh, four weeks into the budget subcommittee process. So you've got all of the all of the normal committees have their uh, own subcommittees underneath finance. The finance handed off a budget uh, for each one of those committees, and they're going through it. They're holding meetings that um, gather information. And my understanding is that next week we will see those come to um, a, an end for the most part, and we will go into the amendment process with the goal of being probably two weeks out from being closed out from the budget subcommittee. Now, that's not something that was announced, right? We're not... We're not right. professionals here right. announcing the, uh, the, the the agenda ahead of time. Um, I'm just gathering this from what I understand from the comments that are being made by committee chairs. Okay. So, I mean, things are happening, but really, obviously, nothing of note as we're not really seeing any reporting on it or anything else. These subcommittees are going through. Anything that you're noticing, um, I mean, I know that you've been heavily involved in the finance process. Anything that you're noticing in these discussions of the subcommittees or anything you're following along with down there? Well, a couple of the things that are uh, have got our attention, and you can understand why, is the, the millions of dollars that are coming from the federal government on the infrastructure package. Um, other legislators, some legislators are focused on the reverse sweep that happened or that didn't happen last year. And there are some funds, um, favorite funds that don't have money in them anymore, and they want to see those um, recapitalized. So that's some uh, it's distracting us a little bit. Um, and then we've, we've got the normal budget process where where people are asking for, for money. And we've got CARES Act funds and, you know, basically all of your different uh, pools of money that came from the federal government for COVID relief that um, in some cases still have a bunch of money there to be spent. Right. So um, we're working through that. It's it's kind of an unusual situation, more, more like the... Uh, 2012 2013 time frame where there's plenty of money to be spent and uh how do we we're kind of out of practice in that right well let me ask you a question i mean speaking of the funds that have been drained we were just talking about the higher education uh fund and everything else in that lawsuit that's going forward i mean it's pretty clear that the constitution says that monies need to be swept back into the constitutional budget reserve as is is likely you mentioned the three-quarters vote so just out of curiosity I mean, isn't this a little bit like tilting at windmills for them to want to have all these funds filled again? Because if they can't get the three quarters vote to get that filled at the end of the of the session, isn't that uh, part of it, or is that run out because of the uh, is the timing issue uh, relevant to that? Yeah, um, the concept of a designated fund being a quasi dedicated fund is something central to the institutionalists. Um, structure of how they want to do government, right? We want to just set these monies up and they fund our programs and they just keep going and keep going and keep going. And that's the, kind of the the antithesis of what the Constitution says with, with no dedicated funds. Every year we should be having conversations about the justification for spending. Right. So 
I, I think they're, you know, I'm not going to put it past the courts to redefine it however they want to redefine it. And usually that's in support of the statist's uh, mentality or the institutionalist mentality. So as long as the courts can just tell the legislature that whatever words they put in the, uh, in the law uh, don't really mean what they wrote when they wrote them, then we're subject to taking a court's decision and saying, hey, what do we do with this? Do we follow it right. or do we ignore it? Well, I mean, we've got a little leniency in the statutory stuff. I mean, I agree. And I mean, I, I don't agree with the way that they read the law out in this last thing, like, for example, on the PFD. But I mean, st- you know, logically, one legislature shouldn't be able to bind over another legislature uh, in statutory law. Yeah, that makes sense in what they're saying. But this is something that's written into the Constitution, which has to be I and mean, that's a much higher standard than something that's statutory. Uh, do you think that there, there's possible? I, I know, but what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm articulating here is the, um, the folks that want to see state government propped up, they've established these designated funds to fund certain programs. And they're saying in one breath, this is, um, we need to follow the law and how we've established it and, and the purpose for why we've established these accounts. But then the permanent fund earnings, on the other hand, we don't have to follow the law. Right. And it, it isn't. It isn't congruous. Right. We're picking and choosing which parts that we want to we want to establish for our own well, for our I, benefit. So if you're going to follow the law, follow the law. That's governor. That's government's favorite game is picking winners and losers in these kind of situations. Uh, is the crux of this kind of come down to the? I mean, the the difference. I mean, the finite hair thin difference there seems to be between the idea of dedicated funds and designated funds, or is that just kind of? I mean, is that just taken for granted? Are are they? Is anybody going to start talking about that? The fact that the Constitution prohibits dedicated funds, but by calling them designated, that they're going to be able to squeak around that? I don't. I don't know how the court's going to rule on that, and it's going to. It's going to come down to the court's ruling in this case, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't. I honestly, I don't know, and I think it's a red herring, largely. I mean, the purpose of the legislature, the constitutional purchase purpose, is to <laughs> spend money. That's that's what we have to do. We have to create a budget every year, right? So we're largely focused on three pots of money for spending in our in our state. You've got a whole bunch of permanent fund earnings. You've got a whole bunch of federal dollars, and then you've got basically oil tax revenue coming in. Right. Those are the three things that we're really focused on. The little pots of money that that are funding the little pet projects are not 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 the the main enchilada. They're they're ancillary to the things that that really matter in the state into a long term long-term purpose. And, and I guess more than anything, it just shows how myopic we are. We're just focused with what's right in front of us right now this year with these pools of money. And my, my, my thing that I care about, it is a little bit harder to fund now because it doesn't have a, um, a designated fund that the money's coming from. And now it has to compete with everything else. Right. So right. we just aren't, we just don't have a, our head picked up and they're looking long-term. And I, I can understand that because we've got the stinking um, requirement to get a budget out every year, right? We're, right. we're not a biennial budget process where we could stop and take a breath one year. <laughs> right. Well, and I understand. That would be great, right? Right. No, I understand what you're saying. I guess I should, I guess I'm, 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 I'm liking back to, I think, Milton Friedman that said 10 million here, 10 million there. Pretty soon you start talking about real money. There are a lot of little pots of money out there, little bits and pieces, some bigger than others. I mean, the, 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 the education fund was over $400 million. So, I mean, you're right. In a way, it's, it's little fights out there, but they all add up to something big. But I guess let's get back to what you talked about on the floor, um, which was basically, you know, I saw it as kind of a chastisement for why aren't we taking the long view like you just talked about? Why aren't we 
talking about a permanent fiscal solution for what's going on because other, we're just ignoring the problem essentially. So let's talk a little bit about your comments. Um, you know, kind of summate them for us here, and then you know, give us your your thoughts on what really need, what the legislature really should be focusing on. Yeah, I think you summed it up good yesterday when you talked about a cycle of pain we continue to fall for. Yeah. We're 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 in this budget process, and we largely care about three things: the federal funds, the permanent fund earnings, and our oil tax revenues. That's largely what we care about. the The solution to the fiscal problem is having a growing economy. If we had a growing economy that was attached to our budget, then there would be uh, legislators would care what's happening in the in the that growing economy because it's somehow influencing what we're doing in the budget. Right now, all we care about is federal dollars, permanent fund earnings, and oil tax revenue. There's no connection to what's actually, you know, where most people work is in the non-oil economy. So there's right. a complete disconnect in the budget process. That this is what I'm talking about in a structural problem. The structural and budgetary it, structural problem. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, do you mean like compared to other states where, for example, the state is funded not by an oil revenue or a permanent fund or something else, but they're funded by taxpayer dollars. So they have to care about what's going on in the economy because if the tax burden, the state tax burden becomes so high, then, you know, it causes all other kinds of problems. So is that kind of what you're saying? Because we are disconnected in that way? Your representatives that are in the legislature are disconnected from your uh, economy. We don't care about it. Largely, I mean, yes, we do. Intrinsically, we do. But look at the 300 bills that we have out there, right? Very little of what our focus is on growing or, or um, setting the conditions for economic growth, right? It, it just is not part of our wheelhouse because we don't have to care about it. We only care about three tranches or three pools of money. And, and that's, that's the reality of where we're at. So we are unique. Alaska is unique in the sense that we've got this large permanent fund earnings. And, and if you look at the projections from uh, Department of Revenue, they're projecting that by the end of the decade, you know, eight years, we're going to have four and a half, five billion dollars if we continue growing at, the, at a normal rate, not the, not the crazy rate that we grew last year. But if we keep growing at a normal rate, we should see four and a half to five billion dollars, you know, in 10 years. Coming so out of the year. We're looking you mean. at our, our current entire UGF revenue coming from the permanent fund earnings within within a decade. Right. Right? And what I'm concerned about, if, and this is falling way below the radar in most people, but you look at this at recent Alaska Supreme Court ruling in uh, Summer Sagunik versus State of Alaska, where one justice, it was a 3-2 split decision, and they've actually just, the, the, the kids have just appealed this decision or asked for a reconsideration. One Supreme Court justice stood in the way from... Uh, creating a constitutional right, what they call it, a constitutional right to a livable climate. Okay. Right. In reality, what this is saying is that the, the Supreme Court is one justice away from telling the state and the executive, the legislature and the executive, that they need to retool their um, energy policies to reflect a constitutional right to a livable climate. Okay. If you couple that with the new Green New Deal and the fact that within a decade, we're going to have enough revenue coming from the permanent fund to say, you know what, we don't really care about that, that percentage of, of income that's coming from the oil economy, right? If you look at Department of Revenue projections, or I'm sorry, uh, fiscal 21 uh, revenue contributions to the state, 5.3% was from petroleum. So if you've got a Green New Deal that's here to stay, you've got a courts that are going to legislate from the bench, 
and you've got permanent fund earnings that are capable of replacing our oil revenue, you've got the makings for a legislature that doesn't care about oil revenue in the sense that it affects the state budget, right? right? So right. where does that put us as a state? We are at a, we are at a very dangerous spot right now, <laughs> well, both from a world perspective of, of uh, eliminating. Um, I, I don't think the demand for oil is going away anytime soon, but oil doesn't have to come from Alaska. Right. Policies at the federal level and the state level um, could jeopardize our oil production. And where does that, what happens to our economy? We, we need to be focused on diversifying our economy as the solution. So when you look at the, the focus of the legislators, three main pools of money, we need a fourth pool of money. We need a fourth pool that ties our economic engine to what the legislators care about. And right now, as I'm looking at this diagram from the Department of Revenue that's got investment earnings in a big building, 65% of our total state revenue, federal revenue, 25%, petroleum revenue, 5.3%, and everything else to the right of that barrel of oil is where the majority of people work in the, in the state of Alaska, right. in our economy. And we're, we're completely disconnected from the budget process. Well, and I think that leads to something even bigger, which we'll get into here in the next segment, which I think is the loss of vision on a smaller, more limited government. I mean, we seem to have lost that kind of, even amongst people who are purportedly Republicans, and that's part of the platform is the smallest, most limited government that we can uh, effectively have. I think it's it's taken us away from that. We'll get your take on that here on the other side. Uh, ben Carpenter is our guest. GOP State Rep for District 29. We're going to be back with him here in just a moment. Don't forget, you can join us out in the Facebook world. If you want to be part of the chat room, we got about 40 people in there, uh, plus another 10 or so on YouTube. Any one of those, if you want to come in and comment, feel free to do so right now. Facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show. We continue with more and Ben Carpenter right after this. Don't go anywhere. Regularly heard on American radio. Okay, Ben Carpenter is our guest. Uh, we're talking with him uh, about, uh, well, everything that's fit to print right now. <laughs> Just all the different things. And I definitely want to get back into this discussion with him uh, on the size and scope of government. Because I think it gets lost. Now, we've talked about how there is no political will. Right now, it seems like no political will to shrink the size and scope of government. Nobody's got the will to actually cut into the budget any further than they have in the last uh, couple years. Uh, and in fact, you're told right to your face that, well, we just don't we just can't. We just don't, there's just no way that we can do that. So we'll talk with Representative Carpenter about that here in just a second. But let's go back to Ben and uh, and just talk with him about, uh, you know, his thoughts before he got up on the floor to speak about this. Ben, what I mean, what was your thought process, and what was your what was your feeling as you got up to to, to you know speak on the floor about this, uh, and uh, you know give me some tell me about some of your frustrations with what's going on there. Yeah, interestingly enough, I wasn't even planning that day to to speak on what I spoke on. I just uh, felt led right at that moment to stand up and <laughs> and start talking. So, um, but the frustration is is that we're four weeks into it, and it appears to me that we're just going to allow the conversation to be status quo, business as usual, 
um, don't really ad address anything that came out of the fiscal policy working group. Just get out of here and move on to the election, right? That's my kind of sense of things. And I can't allow, in my own mind, my own wheelhouse, I can't allow us to, to just say, it's not worth it. It's, it. We can't do it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. We can't address the long-term fiscal crisis because we've got an election coming up. And we can make structural changes because voters might not like it. And I, and I think to myself, you know what? The voters get to make their choice in November. We're supposed to focus on what's best for the state of Alaska, not what's best for our individual districts, but what's best for the state of Alaska. And we are representatives sent by the people to focus on Alaska. And if, if the only thing that we can focus on is a state budget, then perhaps we're the wrong representative to be here because <laughs> that is just a part of what we should be focusing on right now. Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, I, I, to me, it's the sad state of affairs when people start saying things like, well, we just can't, uh, we, you know, we just can't get it done. We just can't focus on it because there's just no political will. I mean, I understand that that uh, the, the road is tough, but that doesn't mean that we should stop fighting for it. But it just seems like everybody's given up. I mean, we start talking about things like a full PFD and it's like, well, you know, there's just no will, so why should we really talk about it? That's why we focused on SJR six, you know, because we thought that was the only way to. Do. But the the problem is, is that, you know, the regular people, like you said, the people in the private sector, are asking questions like, well, wait a second. I mean, we've got to live within our means. Why can't government live within theirs? Why can't we uh, find more efficiencies? Why can't we do those things? But it seems why? like, and go that, ahead. that's a great question. The, the why to that answer is because you have three pools of money. And they seem to be uh, more or less growing. Federal funds, uh, oil revenue, and um, uh, earnings for permanent funds. With the exception of the oil revenues is kind of dwindled and it fluctuates. But the, the, point, the point is that's what the focus. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's a who's got their fingers in those three pots of money. Both Republicans and both Democrats have constituencies who have business plans and business models that are tied to continued state spending and federal spending. So why are we, why would we change that? Right. Why would we get out of the cycle of pain if that is, is um, how we make a living? Right. That's our, that's our business model. So there's, there's no need for me to change that. Well, and that's again, part of the problem. And again, it's a microcosm of what we're seeing at the national level. Really? It's monkey see monkey do because they're doing exactly the same thing at the national level. And it gets to the point where, again, even as I was saying earlier, uh, even people who have, uh, you know, purportedly joined the club and ascribed to the smaller, more limited government mentality are like, well, yeah, that's a great idea, you know, in theory, but we really like what's going on. I mean, we got folks right now who've been in the legislature for years, even though we've changed out a big chunk of the legislature, that are still calling the shots. They've got the institutional knowledge. They know how to work the parliamentary tricks to make things work, and they want business to continue as usual. Um you know, just to change the conversation briefly, you've got major organizations, General Motors back in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, not General Motors, I'm sorry, GE, General Electric, um, other corporations, Toyota went through it, right? Organizational change. They recognized that they're too big, they're too broad, they're too unfocused, and they had to go through some sort of organizational change to come out on the other end, a more leaner um, organization that's more focused on what they need to be focused on. How do you do organizational change? Because that's what we're looking at. It's not a budget thing. It's not a, not a Republican versus Democrat thing. It's a organizational change. How do you engage in organizational change at the state level? We don't have anybody, very few people in the state legislature even know how you would go about doing something like that. 
Well, so the conversation is we're not even having the conversation that we need to have, which is how to engage in organizational change. Let's uh, well, let's have that conversation. All right. Let's uh, let's do that right now. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show. Covet Sense Radio. Ben Carpenter is our guest. Like and share. Here we go. Okay, we're continuing now. Ben Carpenter is our guest. Before we went to break, we were talking with him about, you know, this idea, this quaint idea. It's almost an antiquated quaint idea of smaller, more limited government. That that's really what we're looking for. But it seems like everybody has kind of thrown their hands in the air. Uh, even some of the stalwarts out there. And they've, I mean, they say, well, we're going to keep fighting. But you understand that there's no political will to get any of this done. And Ben was just talking about organizational change that you know sometimes you've got to sometimes you've got to fundamental you can't you know you can't unpickle a pickle sometimes you got to go get a new cucumber and start fresh and that just doesn't I mean is the will out there Ben I mean let's talk about that what you know is is the idea of smaller more limited government so antiquated that nobody's going to want to take it up is it going to require wholesale change what what do we do well I think that there's a will within the legislature to make change. I don't know that it's changed to a smaller, more limited government. I think that's, that's looking at it from a, a fiscal conservative or, or um, um, right of center perspective, right? I think there's, there are people on the left <laughs> that do want to see organizational change. I, I think that is true. I just think that the positions of power right now are filled by people who don't want to see the change happen for, for their own reasons. And, and I don't know that they would even know how to go about it if they did have a will to do it, I, I just there's no evidence that we're we're actually thinking in those regards. We had a great start with the fiscal policy working group of identifying kind of the things that we can agree upon and identify some of the, the challenges or the things that we think we need to fix. There's a start for how you would engage in, in organizational change. You've, you've at least identified what we can agree upon and what we think needs to change. We're not even it's not even in our wheelhouse to, to talk about right now. We're, we're not even referencing what happened from the fiscal policy working group. It was a waste of our time as far as I'm concerned right now. Right, because nobody's discussed it. I mean, nobody brought it up. Bits and pieces of it are mentioned, but there was no full presentation to the legislature as a whole. There was no presentation to the House or the Senate that said, here's a great guiding document that we can work on. And here's, I mean, it was, like I said, parts and pieces of it were referenced in passing but all that work, basically, which, again, to me, kind of an astonishing accomplishment when you've got people uh, in the working group who are made up of all philosophical bents, and they all came together unanimously at the end and said, we need to look at this holistically, we need to address them all at one time, we need to get it done, and yet nobody's paying attention to it. It's, it's, not, in the, um, it's not in our system of pain to think of those things. Our <laughs> system of pain right now is just focused on three pools of money and how we're going to spend it. That's what we're capable of doing. So you're talking about of creating a fourth pool that somehow connects the private economy to the government spend. How, somehow connects the private economy back to something that the legislature cares about. What are our options there? I mean, what are you thinking? Yeah. What 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 should we be doing? So your your um your guest from yesterday has been touting some sort of a uh, income tax for quite a while. Uh, Brad Keithley's been talking about it. Right. And and I, I've been listening and I've been hearing that and I'm thinking to myself as a fiscal conservative, I'm like, I don't want to pay more taxes. But not paying taxes 
enables the conversation at the budget, uh, the, the state budget process to continue the status quo. Because all we're going to be focused on at the legislature is where the money's coming from. That's the nature of it. If it's federal funds, how can we get more? If it's permanent fund earnings, how can we get more? If it's oil revenue, how can we get more? And, and at some point in time, <laughs> if our permanent fund earnings are at a point where we don't need other sources of revenue, then eh, maybe political wins can cause those to go away and, and we'll be okay with that. But if we want the legislature to be focused on things like lowering the cost of energy or getting natural resources into the hands of the people so that they can create wealth with it, if we want those things to happen, then the legislators have to have some um, mechanism at the, at the budget level to care about that. Right. Right now, we don't. We've been, we've been focused as a state. Our structure, our budget structure, has been focused on oil revenue and oil revenue alone in a large sense. Yes, we have fish tax and fish revenue that comes in. Yes, we've got tourism tax and tourism revenue that comes in. Yes, we've got uh, corporate income tax that's non-oil related that comes in. But those, if you look at the chart, those are small dollar figures and largely not what the legislature is focused on. Right. We're focused on those three pools of money. So, uh, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is something very similar to what Jay Hammond talked about, which was the only way for Alaskans to have skin in the game, in his opinion, was the idea that there needed to be a tax so that they would be outraged if things didn't work right and it would connect the legislature to exactly what was exactly what you're talking about is that i mean is that what you're advocating to say that if there's going to be skin in the game that they have to be able to that although you hate taxes that's the that's one of the solutions to doing it yeah i guess i'm looking at it coming at it from a different approach i'm looking at it from an organizational sense of what's actually happening within the legislature and our focus it it, it can be explained very simply as uh, Alaskans have skin in the game. Your representatives that you send have skin in the game because you care about where the state government is, is spending because you're paying the taxes for them. Right. So uh, that's that's what he's he's arguing. I'm arguing that you're not going to see change until your legislators care about where the money's coming from, and it's not from federal funds or from um, or, or permanent fund earnings because none none of those two things have anything to do with what you do. As, as a citizen of the state of Alaska. Sure. I mean, yes, you pay, you pay federal taxes. Yes, I get it. our income tax from the federal government comes back to us, and there's a certain amount of money there that we should be, should be benefiting from because we're paying our taxes, right? I'm, I'm not saying cut out all federal funds. I'm just saying that if we're, gonna, if we're going to change how we're making decisions at the legislature, um, you got to change where the source of money is because that's where our focus is. So, I mean, if I dumb it down and basically say people don't necessarily care about the cost of programs when the money's not coming out of their pocket, that's essentially what you're saying. Oh, sure, that program's fine. It's well and good. It sounds good because, hey, I don't have to pay for it directly, so it doesn't really affect me, so I'm not really engaged in it. Whereas if I was paying taxes and all of a sudden I'm like, well, that program, it might be nice to have, but it's not a must-have and my taxes should go to something else, you're saying that that would engage more people. Yeah, I'm saying I'm saying that if we restructured the way we spend our permanent fund earnings back to how we did, which was put some of that money into the private sector and then require the private sector to support the size and scope of government, then your private sector and your your representatives that you send to the legislature care what the private sector thinks about the size and scope of government. Right now they don't. They don't have to. <laughs> they don't it, it isn't part of the conversation other than um stop coming after us for more taxes. That's what we hear from 
corporate interests, right? How are we ever going to get people with money to invest in the state of Alaska um, to grow our economy if we've got one of the highest corporate income tax rates? Who's going to do that? Right. Why would they do that? So my main problem with what Brad has suggested uh, in the past is that if we did have some kind of income tax to tie people's interest to what's going on in the state, the problem is is the legislature just sucks up all the money in the room anyway, and all it would do would increase the money pool that they would have to spend. I mean, they could still spend half of the PFD and the earnings and the oil revenues and any new taxes that would be generated. Where's the guarantee that any kind of tax that was created would then be offset by that? I mean, that's just essentially giving them the opportunity to grow government even more. So. That's why I've been talking about a comprehensive fiscal plan, right? We're talking about individual levers that can be moved to uh, change the, the ones and zeros on the, on the balance sheet, right? right? I'm talking about a comprehensive fiscal plan that includes a spending cap so that you can't just spend more, right? We have an effective spending cap that's tied to the size of our economy. You can't spend more if the economy can't support it. Regardless how much money is coming out of the permanent fund earnings, you can't spend it. It needs to go to savings or to something else, right? right? Why do we need to grow our permanent fund earnings to $100 billion if we're, we've made a decision that, that it's not going to fund state government, that we ourselves are going to fund our state government through the, the growth of, a, of a, an economy? Right. And that's ultimately what the people care about is a growing economy. How do we, how do we diversify and grow our economy? Um, it, it is counterintuitive in my mind to say, hey, we need to create a tax. But creating a tax helps the legislature care where that money's coming from. They yeah. don't care right now. We're, we're not focused on our, our economy. Well, and I guess my other argument is they're already taxing us through the taking of the PFD, so I don't know how much tax it would take to get people's attention. Uh, i got about uh, 45 seconds here, Ben. I'm going to give you the floor. Final thoughts. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm frustrated. I am looking for um, assistance in trying to solve the structural problem we have that is the focus of the legislature. And it's going to take all hands on deck, not only legislators, but corporations, private interests, uh, influencing us in the legislature to come up with a better solution than what we have. We are at risk of losing our oil industry in the future if we do not um, prevent 100% of our permanent fund earnings from being spent on state government. We need to diversify and we need to have the legislature care about diversifying our economy. Ben Carpenter, our guest for today. Ben, thanks very much. Uh, hold the line for just a hot second. Folk, we're out of time. Ben, I'll let you finish up there because, I mean, you know, again, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I understood what Hammond was saying. But, again, my fear is is that what we'll see, because we've seen this in the past, is they're like, oh, that's a great idea. And so we'll pass just part of it. We'll pass the taxation or the revenue component, but we won't pass the spending cap component. And it just gives them access to even more oodles of money. And we'll be worse off in the long run than we were to begin with. Yeah, that's why I'm saying that it has to be a comprehensive plan. You can't pick and choose. This, this is what came out of the Fiscal Policy Working Group, is don't pick, select, don't select out individual components of the, of the recommendations and just run with them. It has to be a comprehensive package. It's a rewrite, a restructuring of how we do state government. Well, I don't know how popular this is going to be. I know that the conservative base is very... Um well, it's very leery of, uh, of, of, of any kind of conversation about a potential new tax or revenue or anything else like that. Even with some of the logical things that you've laid out there, uh, I mean, they, they you know, people are, people are already screaming about, you know, we can't do that. We, we just can't do that. Um, I'm, I'm the guy that's going to have to pay more taxes. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Right. No. So I, don't, I, I don't see how you do it. 
I don't see how you're going to overcome the business interests that are that are neither Democrat nor Republican that are tied to the structure that we have right now. Oh, the, they are capped into the three yeah. sources of money. The corporate We're only cronyism. Care about the three sources of money. Yeah, the corporate cronyism that we see in the state, the, the lobbies that go in there and lobby for more state spending because their whole business plan is built on utilizing that. I mean, I'm with you that. Uh, I mean, I'm with, I'm with you. Um, all right. Well, Ben, uh, we should we should revisit this here. And uh, next time, maybe I'll give you your head early on and, and we'll let you steer the conversation a little bit. But we'll have you back on here shortly. OK, sounds good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on board. Appreciate you being part of it this morning. Um, I mean, this is I mean, how did we get so far away from a full PFD? And smaller, more limited government. How, how did we get so far away from that ideal? That is, I mean, that's part of our problem here at this point. We, you know, even people who supposedly are Republican, smaller, more limited government are, you know, either they're either flummoxed or frustrated or stymied or they're advocating directly for more government spending. And uh, I mean, it is. It's a cycle of pain. There's there's just no two ways about it. It is the cycle of pain. He's 100 percent right in that. And just like I argue with Brad Keithley, I mean, ideally, what you're saying, you know, makes sense from a logical standpoint, meaning, you know, having people tied directly to the to the cost of government would get them more engaged and more involved. But the problem is, is that if you take away the 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 one component, he's like, it needs to be holistic. But hell, that's what the fiscal policy working group said, is that it needed to be holistic. And yet, the legislature picks and chooses what it wants to attack. So it could very easily take just the revenue portion of that out, adding a new tax, without picking up and taking up the spending cap issue. That's disastrous. I mean, that's absolutely disastrous. I just, I don't even... I, I don't even know what to say. Um, I mean, we you know we need to we need to fix a few things. Taking the PFD off the table first is a great idea. Taking that PFD in because it's sucking up all the oxygen in the room. But I don't think that it can be taken up in a vacuum. I think that's part of our problem is we're trying to tackle one thing at a time in that regards when they are also deeply interconnected. That. You really can't take on one without the other. I just don't think that you, you know, I just don't think you can you do that. Hammond wanted the state tax, income tax. He was okay with suspending it, Chris, but he did not want it taken off the books, and that was the problem, is that it got taken completely off the books. His argument was turn it to zero because there may be a time when you needed to turn it back on so that more people could be engaged and, and have a connection to their government. That's the problem. So, I mean, I don't know. All right. Well, we're going to talk about the PFD aspect of this here in just a second. We've got Joe Geldhoff and Donna Ardwin are going to be our guests up next. I believe I've got them on the phone ready to go. Good morning. Well, good morning, Michael Dukes. Good Joe Geldhoff down here in Juneau. Good morning, Joe. And you have Donna with you? I, I am. Good morning. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Donna. Thanks for coming on board and joining us. Um, I mean, I'm a little frustrated this morning over the whole kind of turn of the conversation. Hopefully you guys can, uh, lay out us, uh, lay us out a path here, maybe a little bit to kind of come back onto 
track here. Um, and uh, so I'm going to ask you to hang out here and hold out in my virtual green room for a second. And uh, we'll be back with you here in, uh, in, in just a moment. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this. But again, uh, just finishing up with Ben Carpenter, who basically, I think in the end, was basically advocating that what we needed was a comprehensive spending package that included a spending cap and a new tax. Which again, as a Republican, seems anathema. But the problem is, as I said before, is that the legislature is going to pick and choose anyway, and they're going to take what they want, which is the new revenue, without the restrictions of a new spending cap. And uh, we're going to be even worse off than we were. I just, I, I just, I can't. I just don't understand why this is so hard. Just, I just. Other than the fact that I guess special interests are being served at all levels, but I just don't understand how you can continue to think that you can spend more than you take in and it's going to be okay. But I've been asking that question about the federal government for years. So, I mean, maybe I'm just, maybe it's my naivete showing. Maybe my slip is showing. Can you see it? Can you see it from there? Maybe that's what it is. All right. Well, we're going to continue here. Hour two is dead ahead. The Michael Duke Show, Joe Geldhoff, Donna Ardwin, our guest. We're going to talk about the permanent fund and why it needs to be taken care of first, in their opinion. That's up next. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. The Michael Duke Show, broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. And as the fancy guy just said there, around the world at MichaelDukeShow.com, on the internet, as well as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch TV. Good morning. Welcome back to the program. It is hour two, and we are ready to dive into it. Our guests in this hour are Joe Geldhoff and Donna Ardwin. Uh, Donna, of course, is the former OMB director and economist. Joe is a PFD defender, activist, and uh, all-around um, um, well, trouble. He's a potster, I think, more than anything else, in a good way. Uh, they joined us. They joined us this morning to discuss the PFD and why the PFD issue needs to come off the table first. Uh, they join us this morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for coming on board, you guys. All right. So, look, um, we talked a little bit about this the other day. There was an opinion piece that came up. Uh, on the ADN, it was talking about taking care of the PFD first because it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And until that is taken care of, it will be the 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 hockey puck that's slung back and forth across the table over and over and over again. Um, so let's take it. Let's take that uh, bite first at, uh, uh, and start there. Joe, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, as a, as a member of the Permanent Fund Defenders uh, Board, uh, and I'm. 
proud to be there with Jack Hickel and, and Rick Halford and uh, Clem Tillian was our chairman. We're in the process of uh, adding a new member. We think that the permanent fund dividend is one of the most vital um, tools for protecting the permanent fund. Um, I could go on to other issues facing the permanent fund right now. Uh, arguably, the permanent fund dividend issue is not the most important, but but I don't want to hijack you know, your, your show, Michael. But it's obvious to a lot of people who have been around and, and are steeped in politics that the so-called comprehensive fiscal plan here is, is not going to happen. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll, I'll just offer up a uh, – most people are familiar with the old um, prisoner's dilemma issue where there's two prisoners, and if one of them rats out first, they get a better deal, um, you know, to whoever's got them held up. Well, the permanent fund dividend is 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 an issue like prisoner's dilemma, but there's three prisoners here. Um, there's the tax issue. There's the spending issue, and there's the PFD issue. And the prisoner's dilemma is always a problem, but a three-way prisoner's dilemma is almost impossible to solve because the odds go down one out of the three prisoners will go first. So if you're a PFD first person as I am, um, and you say to the people who want new taxes, okay, let's solve your problem first. Uh, they'll say, thank you very much, we'll take the taxes, and oh, by the way, um, sorry, Charlie, you get nothing. Right. Or if you're a spending person, you know, you, you do them first, uh, they get their deal, and they tell people, you know, that, that want the revenue enhancement, the taxes, or the PFD, oh, sorry, you know, we, we changed our mind here. That's the problem uh, in, in some ways with this three-way dilemma. Uh, and everybody sees the promise of having a comprehensive solution, but nobody wants to go first. Um, and nobody wants to do it all together. There's a lot of people, thoughtful people, including like Representative Carpenter, they say they want a comprehensive solution. But there's a lot of people who say they want that. It's masking. They don't want to do anything. They just want to do this on an ad hoc basis. And I'll stop nattering on, but right. we should talk about taxes down the trail, not just a permanent fund dividend, but. Right. Well, and I want to I want to address. I mean, I mean, I don't mind going into the issues, the larger issues of the permanent fund itself, not just the dividend, uh, like you alluded to here. We can get into that in a second, but uh, let's get to Donna first. Donna, your take on this and what we've just been talking about, and in the idea of you know getting the permanent fund dividend issue settled, um, and maybe the likelihood of that, and 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 is there the political will to get that done? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense and isn't. Um It doesn't fly in the face of what um, Ben Carpenter was just saying, who was just terrific, by the way. I think maybe I heard him a little different than you did. I mean, one of the first things he said is that there's an inertia in Juno, which we've right. all seen, toward eliminating the dividend altogether and using the permanent fund only to fund government. So I think that's the first thing that he said. And I think that Joe's statement is, is spot on in terms of if you don't get that off the table, it's going to be gone. Well, I mean, I definitely would agree with that. I mean, my my thought this whole time and really for the last 20 years has been that the ultimate goal is not just taking the PFD itself, but the corpus. The corpus is just too large and juicy a cookie jar to be ignored. Uh, and even though now they're looking at earnings that are going to be, you know, exceeding what we're receiving right now in the next six, seven, eight years, um, it doesn't mean that the corpus of the fund is still not uh, is still not uh, a tempting target for many of them. 
Uh, but you're right. The elimination of the permanent fund dividend to the people would be a big take. That would be a big tax. And then they would essentially, I think based on their past record, uh, the spending would increase to the point to where then they would say, well, and now we've got to have to have a tax too on top of that. Um, so, Joe, go ahead and, and expand a little bit on what you were saying. And if you want to draw into the issues of the permanent fund itself, I mean, I think it's relevant. I think it's important that we understand how that's all connected. Well, I, I would say, and this is both my view, and I think the, the permanent fund defenders' view, there's a simple test here when you're, when you're dealing with the permanent fund dividend. Are you a citizen first or a government first kind of person? Uh, Alaska has a long history of being kind of independent and feisty in terms of the citizens. Um, once we got the oil money, uh, a lot of vested interest, and not just public employees, a lot of vested interest became sort of government first. Have we always had a lot of government up here? Yeah, kind of. Uh, do we have the largest per capita government set up uh, in the, of any of those jurisdictions? I, I'll defer to Don on that, but I think I, I would win a bet that says we're either number one or number two. My point is, with the permanent fund dividend, you put the people first, you put the citizens first, and then you deal with government. By putting the permanent fund dividend first and putting a formula in the Constitution, not some statutory scheme. And I got to tell you, probably not some percentage of market value scheme, which is really dubious if it's set too high, particularly if there's inflation as there is right now. I think, you know, even Jerome got the, the memo that inflation is not just transitory here at the head of the, the Federal Reserve here. But you need to put a formula in the Constitution that satisfies and takes a slice of the earnings from the citizens' permanent fund and gives them a dividend. Um, right. We could talk for a, all day with sensible people about the right formula, but this business of putting government first is what a lot of people do down in Juneau. And they're not just Democrats. Uh, that includes Republicans who've got an endless amount of, of ideas on how to spend the earnings from the permanent fund on, on goofball projects. You know, I mean, the governor just came out with something that seems to say we're going to go back and build the Susitna Wantana Dam again. Um, that thing's been dead since 1980. And now we're talking about mega projects again. So, you know, do the PFD first, and then you'll have a situation where the revenues have to face the demands for government services. And that becomes a much easier problem to reconcile than trying to do all three at once. Right. Well, I mean, I totally agree with that concept of dividend first, because the people should have first call uh, on all those things. Donna, you've been part of this. You've seen the legislature. You've sat in front of them and answered questions. Does it seem to you that this legislature has any interest in really looking out for the people's interest in the permanent fund dividend first? Or are they more concerned with the public spend rather than the private spend? Well, it depends on which legislature you're talking about. Right. Of course, we have a terrific group down there, and thanks to you and your listeners, you know, are getting more and more um, true conservatives down there who are putting people first and want to put Alaskans first. But uh, right now, those who are in charge, as you well know, um, as Joe said, are, uh, and as Ben aptly said, you know, the inertia is toward eliminating the PFD and putting government first at all costs. Um, Joe, you mentioned something I would like you to continue to bring up, which is this concept of a POMB. Um, I find the POMB a complete distraction. Um, you know, Ben also used the term earlier for something else, a red herring. I call the POMB a red herring. It's like um, 
the folks who really want to eliminate the dividend are distracting conservatives with math. And you don't have a math problem. So going from using a percentage of what's being earned to a percentage of the whole market value has been a complete distraction. If, In my opinion, if the governor or legislators wish to reduce the size of the permanent fund dividend, changing the math doesn't do anything. Then you just need to come out and say, you know, this is how much we want to take. Well, and and I think that's been the argument again uh, for a lot of us against POMV since back in 1999 when some of this was first proposed is that it would eventually cut into this and give them more freedom to play with the math, as you say, and take more of the money. Joe, what is your what's your take on the the POMV? And uh, I mean, should SB 26 be repealed in that regard because of it? Well, I would say the statute that creates the percentage of market value should not be repealed. Uh, Remember, the percentage of market value of the combined earnings reserve account and the corpus was a was a permanent fund corporation and the, the trustees. They wanted sort of a rule of thumb so they'd know how much uh, assets they had to have in liquid form for the legislature to spend. And in that sense, as a rule of thumb or a guideline, it, it has some use, but it's a, it's a financial management tool. And it also doesn't take into account uh, very well or at all inflation. So I'm with Donna that it's it's largely a distraction. And there's especially new legislatures. They come in and they say, oh, POMV, you know, what is that? And and it takes them two years to figure out that it's just a tool and kind of a guideline. And it it deflects real consideration of putting a resolution together that would guarantee in the Constitution a PFD, which is a much superior management tool if you're a people-first person, as I am, um, as opposed to a government. And and one of the things that's a real telling is a lot of the government people who are government-first, they love the POMV strategy because it's a guaranteed uh, stream of revenue. Right. They'll, they'll take that, and down the trail, they'll take revenue. But, but a POMV, if you don't believe me, all you need to do is look at the Callan Group, who have been longtime advisors of the Permanent Fund Trustees Incorporation, and they have said 5% POMV, one that doesn't first take off inflation, that, that's a, a skim off the, the assets of the corporation, um, it is not sustainable. And, you know, the governor's on record, I want a 50-50 as a POMV. Well, 50-50 sounds great, but 50-50 of what? 50-50 of 5% will guarantee down the trail that the, that the corpus of the permanent fund will start to diminish. 5% is too high, and that's one reason I hate it. Plus, I'm with Don. It's a, it's a distraction. What they need to do is stop all the yammering and come up with a resolution that puts a sensible permanent fund dividend formula in the Constitution, send that to the voters, and then get on with, with getting the right-sized government. What is your suggestion on this? I mean, again, separating the POMV issue out, and if we do put a sta- uh, put a, uh, a constitutional amendment in to guarantee a PFD, what kind of formula, Joe, would you be suggesting in that case if it's not a POMV? Well, my first uh, choice, and, and this is you know something that a lot of people have talked about, is the existing statutory formula worked great for decades, uh, and it worked until it didn't, and then Bill Walker vetoes the appropriation for that, you know, Clem Tillian went to court, you know, with Bill Wilikowski 
They litigated that all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost. So, you know, we can't force it in as a matter of constitutional right. It would take a resolution. I don't see the, the necessary votes. You, you need 14 votes in the Senate and, what, I think 28 in the House to get a resolution through that would put a PFD formula in the Constitution. There aren't the votes um, to putting the statutory thing in. Now, does that break my heart? No, I'm too old of a guy. I've been politics too long. But what is the art of the possible? Um, if they would really concentrate on what the art of the possible is, and if the governor would really get engaged with the legislatures, could you get 14 and 28 in the House? I think you could. And, and I won't completely abandon the idea of using the percentage of market value as long as it's very low and it's only for the PFD. Uh, a for example, and this isn't the, you know, my first choice. If you did a two percent of the percentage of market value of the earnings reserve account and the corpus after inflation proofing, uh, that would protect the fund. That would provide a constitutionally guaranteed permanent fund dividend, and that would yield a payment more than the citizens have been getting. Right, and it also would not guarantee any money for government. They'd have to go every year as they should and justify the expenditures. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. But if they would start working on some alternatives besides just saying, I want the statutory. And by the way, a lot of people who say they want the statutory, they know it's not going anywhere. So it's easy to say. It's like a political softball. They hit it out of the infield and they feel really good about themselves, knowing it's not going to score a run. Right. Well, um, I, I want to pick this up a little bit with Donna uh, on the other side, but I've got to come to a break here, so please hold the line for us. Joe Geldhoff, Donna Arduin, our guest. We're uh, talking about the permanent fund and the permanent fund dividend and how we need to uh, how we need to basically pick this up first and get this off the table so that we can address some of the deeper issues that are facing us. We'll continue with more of this in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Luke Show continues. It is your home. For common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back with more after this. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. Okay, we're in the break right now. Uh, Donna Arduin and Joe Geldhoff, our guest. So, Joe, just to clarify this, you're saying... Uh, a 2% POMV in your mind, I mean, the second best option, I mean, the first best being the statutory formula, but the second best option is a 2% POMV that is strictly used to pay the permanent fund. And then the legislature would then have to duke it out amongst themselves for some kind of remaining draw. Would that be based on a POMV formula or would that just be based on number of dollars that they can vote to pull out of the earnings reserve or what? Well, you could go there. It's important to me to say 2% if if you use the 2% just for the dividend of the percentage of market value, it has to be um, uh, post-inflation proofing. Uh, inflation, and, and I'll invoke Elmer Rasmussen, uh, who was a, a lot of things, including breathtakingly arrogant, but he knew about finance, and he talked about inflation being like the thief in the night that steals your assets. So if you inflation proof, if you're really into maintaining a trust fund, and you use a POMV to pull 2% out, um, is that less than 50-50, the, the vaunted 50-50? Sure. I mean, even a lawyer can do the math there. 
and it's what, 60-40. But, but 60-40 is artificial if you're not giving anything to government. Um, and you shouldn't give anything to government because if you divide, if you take all of the revenue on a POMV basis, you basically ended the trust fund. The, the, the corpus is no longer a trust. It's just an annuity. And if you overdraw it, it you won't grow the fund because you have a guaranteed draw. And, you know, you got senators running around saying, well, Harvard says 6%. You know, we can pull 6% out of our endowment, but there's money coming in on a regular basis. And we're not Harvard University. Um, the prudent thing to do here is if you're going to use, and I'm not in love with this 2% thing, but, you know, you and your listeners deserve to hear some alternatives. And you're not hearing them from anybody down here. It's a set piece battle and everybody's stuck on their own position. So. Well, and I think you made a valid point when you say it's easy for people to say statutory formula, full PFD, knock it out of the park. They get to score points back home, but nothing happens on it. And Donna, you've talked, you've mentioned it again. Ben's talked about the inertia uh, of what's going on. And, the, and, we, and, you know, we all know that inertia has to be stopped before you can move something in the opposite direction. Excuse me, in the opposite direction. Um, so, I mean, how do we do that since the inertia seems to be on continuing to prioritize the a public sector spend over the private sector spend? Well, first, I do agree, as I said, that putting the PFD um, into the Constitution, and if it was up to me, it would be a, a larger percentage. And I think Ben would have said that as well. Um, but that being said, um, putting money, putting part of a draw into the Constitution to go to government, I think is a very, very poor start. And I think if you want to have a comprehensive fiscal solution, um, putting the PFD in the Constitution is a great way to start, and then it allows you to have a real conversation about what the future of Alaska would be. And when Ben Carpenter was talking about, you know, diversifying the economy and growing a private economy, there were some some things that were very important that he said. I mean, he was talking about putting a lot of money back into the hands of Alaskans. And uh, forgive me, Ben. I shouldn't be speaking for you, so I'll speak for myself. Put a lot of money, put a lot of money back into the hands of Alaskans, and have a spending cap that's tied to the growth of the economy. Not as your guest the other day said, as to you know how much we spent last year. That can work for Texas because Texas spends almost a quarter of what Alaska spends on a per capita basis. Um, so it's just fine for Texas to say we're going to spend you know what we were spending plus a little bit more each year. But what, but. Then what, what I would say, what I thought Ben was saying, is tied to the size of the economy. So you're not going to get any government growth in that scenario unless you actually grow a private economy. And you're not going to do that unless you put a lot of hands of money into the hands of Alaskans or, as Joe says, people first. So that's the kind of comprehensive plan that you can look at if you get the PFD into the Constitution. Well, I mean, I would love to see it. I mean, I, I think it's important, and not just the not just the PFD, but as Carpenter talked about, and as we've talked about, and Keith Lee and everybody else, we have to have that statutory, or we have to have that uh, that cap as well, the spending limit or the spending cap, uh, in a constitutional basis as well, because that's the only way they're going to acknowledge it. And without that, any new revenues or any new monies that we seem to you know to force out there will be subsumed by the government because that's been their name. I mean, look, like you said, look at look at what's going on right now. Ben Carpenter said, "What they're out of." out of habit of that kind of stuff. Um, we're back here. The Michael Duke show, common sense, Liberty based free thinking radio, Donna Ardwin, Joe Geldhoff are our guests. And we are talking about the permanent fund before we went to break. We were uh, just talking about the difference between POMV 
uh, uh, at for paying just the dividend versus the government draw um, and everything else. And my question to Donna was, I mean, the impetus, because she was talking about uh, inertia and things moving in a certain way, the problem is, is that we've got a whole group of people down there that just want business as usual to continue. Uh, so, Joe, why don't you pick that up? I mean, because I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I don't. I think you're preaching to the choir on this program, both of you at this point. But the problem is, is that we've got a bunch of people down there that definitely don't see things the same way that we do. Otherwise, it would be people first all the time instead of government first. And so I guess the question is, how do we change that inertia? How do we get that going? I mean, does it and if we can't get the constitutional convention or constitutional amendment passed on our own, does it take a convention or what does it take? So, so uh, Joe, you first and then Donna. Well, we, we talked a lot about the, why it is critical to, to put the permanent fund dividend first. And one of the things that people overlook, they say, well, I want all three things. I want the spending cap. I want the permanent fund dividend, you know, and, and then they talk about, oh, and we, we're going to need a little revenue. In one sense, putting the permanent fund dividend first and dealing with that is a two-for-one uh, proposition. If you put the permanent fund dividend formula in the Constitution, it is, in fact, a spending limit on government because you're taking money off the table. And one of the things that all politicians, Republicans and Democrats, independents, they're always worried about losing opportunities. And they all love to spend money. They may say they don't. But if you take money off the table with a constitutional formula, it is a de facto limit on spending. It may not be, you know, Representative Carpenter's tied to the private sector and everything, but I'm a big believer in reducing options for spending money. Uh, it's the same thing as, you know, you don't give your, your teenage daughter or son an unlimited checking account. Uh, you know how that's going to end. and It's not going to be good. So there are a couple other things, too. If we have time and you're inclined, Michael, I'd like to talk about taxes a, a teeny bit and how damaging they are to the private sector here. It's okay. an article of faith among a lot of people, including, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans, which I am. And, well, in this comprehensive solution, we're going to have to have taxes. <clears throat> right. Well, Donna can address that. Yeah, we can but come. The other thing is let's, let's not overlook the most important issue on the permanent fund is the investment criteria. Right, And one thing that's going on in Juneau is any bright, glittery object, whether it's the firing of Angela Rodell, or now there's this new North Slope Borough thing, they all lurch off and say, oh, they want to talk about that, or let's investigate that. And they get distracted from saying, how are we going to invest? What's the investment criteria for the citizens' permanent fund? And are we going to really use the prudent person, prudent investor rule? Or are we going to start allowing the, the permanent fund, as seems to be taking place with Chairman Craig Richards, are we going to allow it to become sort of a development slush fund for his old friend Bill Walker? Right. You know, we'll build the gas line, or are we going to, you know— Yeah, you're talking, about, you're talking about utilizing the permanent fund for investment inside of Alaska, which has been a pipe dream for a lot of people for a long time. And it would become more of a political, who-you-know kind of slush fund. We've talked about that instead of just— investing in what gives us the best return, which probably or usually is outside of the state. But before we get into the taxation issue, I want Donna to take a crack at this on the issue of business as usual and the same people are there. I mean, I agree with what Joe's saying that it is a de facto spending cap, but you've been in enough legislatures, you've seen enough governments to know that even if we have a de facto spending cap by reducing the permanent fund take and you know from the government and, and shielding it from them, 
that that won't necessarily stop them from doing other things and taking monies and saying, well, now we need revenue in the form of a tax. I mean, they always want to grow government. There just doesn't seem to be any impetus, uh, to use the word again, or or inertia to move in that direction. They want to protect the government spend. They do. But um, <laughs> to go back to Ben again, it takes one of those three pots, you know, um, off the table or, or partially off the table. So the more I think um, you can focus them on getting back to growing an economy. I mean, in Ben's nightmare, if you continue to have those three pots, you eliminate a dividend altogether, you're not going to need to worry about how much you grow government because you're not going to have any, you're not going to have a private economy. You're not going to have a growing population. You're going to continue, as Alaska is now, to have a shrinking population. I was going to talk about income taxes, and we can, about how much of your, you know, your population and your adjusted gross income is leaving the state. And, uh, you know, the permanent fund will be able to take care of all of you in the way that uh, government is, if, if you could call it, taking care of Alaskans now because your outcomes are so poor. Um, but there won't be any um, – <laughs> there won't be any um, – impetus to change anything right so change has got to start somewhere and i think joe's proposal is, is a great start well then let's go to taxes now since we both talked about it and you both want to talk more about it donna can talk about income taxes uh, but joe first on to you you want to talk about it. You, you know you were just said you wanted to talk about it so dive in what uh what what is your thoughts on the taxation issue well i it's it's i've been observing politics in Alaska and Juneau, from from my little perch in Juneau since 1979. And, you know, I've lived through Dick Randolph was, you know, death on the income tax and they got rid of it. And Jay Hammond said we should just suspend it and everything else. And there is a role in government for for gaining revenues from either individuals or, you know, sales tax or anything else. Um, You know, most most of the Democrats, they've got a gigantic target on on ConocoPhillips and and a few other corporations and everything. Uh, All of those are legitimate conversations, but income tax penalizes, you can look at it that way, um, individuals who are working. And it becomes very tempting to start saying, put it on Charlie's tab or put it on, you know, Charlene's tab. And there's this corrosive impact where taxes aren't lined up with government services. Um, first, take care of, of the citizens and give them a little slice of the earnings from, from their permanent fund. And then get involved with what is the right size of government? Are we really efficient here? Um, and then and only then should you look at taxes. Um, there's, there's an honest debate about an income tax, but it ought to be last it ought to be steering at what do we really need, not just it would be really cool to be on the finance committee and divvy up the loot, and, and I want more loot. I mean, there's this buccaneer quality to, to the finance committees that started, and I, and I watched it, starting in like basically 1980 when, when the Trans-Alaska Pipeline had already been flowing, but the revenue started you know, oozing in right. to the fifth floor of the House and Senate down in, in the Capitol. And by the way, as a Juno guy, this would be the same problem if the capital was in Willow or, or, or Unilaclete. Um, you know, th- this is a fundamental human problem with people who have their hands on the money, love spending it, and the people who have to open up their wallets, whether it's conical Phillips or individuals, they're not so wild about that, you know. Well, no, I would agree with that, except for 
uh, ConocoPhillips can afford to fly all their people to Juneau, and the average person can't necessarily do it. But that's – and I'm not advocating for a change of the capital, um, but we'll we'll come back to that here later on. I, I know you probably don't want to open up that can of worms. Uh, Donna, uh, your thought on the taxation issue – and I know Brad has made the argument that you know he's not in favor of taxes, but if there has to be a tax, he's advocated for a flat tax. But you have taken a look at this a little deeper on a lot of the different income streams, so give us your thoughts on the taxation of income. Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I work with uh, Dr. Arthur Lapper, who was Ronald Reagan's economist, and we keep uh, reams of data on all 50 states and over significant periods of time. So I could talk about the effect income taxes have had on states all day. Um, I do want to start off with going back to the math problem. You know, budgets aren't math problems per se. They're economic problems. And that's why I've never done budgets without having good, you know, terrific economists with me and including my mentor um income taxes take states that have positive gross income you know agi flows and turn them negative alaska already has a negative agi flow you're about the equivalent of california right now and what we've seen over any period of time is that states that have income taxes compared to states with no income taxes there's a huge disparity in um Growth, domestic product growth, employment growth, population growth, AGI inflow versus outflow, and state and local revenues. And the one thing that we've also noted is the only thing worse than having an income tax is getting getting one when you didn't have one. Over our, since 1960, the 11 states that have adopted income taxes have gone from whatever economic position they were in to immediately following the adoption of that tax to um, being below the nation in all of those measures that I just talked about, you know, gross domestic product, employment, population, and notably state and local tax collection. So those will go down. And I think getting back to the original point, I think anybody who understands economics and isn't just trying to solve a math problem, but it's, I, I may be cynical, but to advocate for an income tax is just to drive more people out of Alaska and let that permanent fund just, you know, have more money for fewer people. Right. Um, Don Ardwin and Joe Geldoff are our guest. Um, I'm going to keep you guys for one more segment if you're willing to stay, because I want you to uh, lay us out here a little bit of a call of action. Um, are you guys willing to stay for one more segment? I know I'd, I'd only talked about two, but if you have time, I'll take you for the third. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Delighted to. All right. So hold the line. Donna Ardwin, Joe Geldoff, our guest. One final segment here of the program coming up. And, um, we're going to dive into this uh, with their suggestions because they've given us a lot of information. But the question is, <clears throat> how do we fundamentally use it as people, as average people? It's not economists or not lawyers and activists, but as average everyday people who are worried about, you know, uh, making sure we hit the rent and hit the heat and make sure that the, the food bill is paid and everything else. How do we take what they're talking about right here and how do we turn it into action? That's the that's the next question. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that's going to take up the whole segment. So <laughs> that's what we need. That's what we need to do. So we're going to continue with Donna Ardwin and Joe Geldhoff. It's up next. The Michael Duke show, common sense, Liberty based, free thinking radio. We're broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. 
Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, uh, in the break right now, uh, Donna Ardwin, uh, Joe Geldhoff uh, with us here. Um, you know, <clears throat> I, I mean, I love what you guys are saying. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to be Debbie Downer on this stuff, but I mean, this is a lot of the same things, and you guys are saying it at a much higher level than I ever did because I'm not an economist nor an attorney. But uh, I mean, this is a lot of the same things that I've been talking about for the last five, six, seven years on this program specifically, and yet nothing seems to happen. Nothing, nobody, you know, like as I said, the inertia, you're right, the inertia is all moving in one direction. And so, uh, I mean, ha. <laughs> How how do we stop this crap? I mean, that's the problem. How do we stop it? Because, I mean, my thought is at this point is everything's got to come to a screeching halt. I mean, we basically have to hit rock bottom before we're going to change anything, and that doesn't help us. Um, so how do we change it? Uh, Donna, we'll start with you. Well, you need some strong leadership. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about changing players. Um, I think that you need to change the players in order to get some strong leadership. And, uh, and that can be done. Um, we all can vote to do that. Um, clearly, an interesting idea is the Constitutional Convention because it can help you also change out judicial players. Right. But uh, you got to change your, you know, the leadership at the top. Um, you know, including those who are running the fiscal committees, and in, in my opinion, including your governor. Well, I mean, that changing the players is is the number one priority uh, in the Charter of Changes. And we have changed out some of them. And we've changed out almost a third of the legislature in the last four years. But again, we've got some of those diehards in there. And they are in there and they're in leadership positions like you're talking about. And they are strong leadership, just not in the right direction. Joe, I mean, what else has to happen in your mind? Well, whatever you... I've done a fair amount of negotiations in various contexts, not just legal. Um over the past 40 or so years. Uh, and to, in order to get a satisfactory result, you have to understand what your first principles are. And then you have to adhere to those. And finally, near the end, you have to be willing to, if you get to the, and the way I was trained in my success is when you get to the 85% level of your first principles, uh, you strike the deal and you move on. And, and that's, particularly appropriate to not hold out for a hundred percent in a, in a, in a negotiation setup or a, an organization like the legislature, because they're organic. They go on. Um, it, it's not the only deal you're going to do. There'll be ones down the trail. And if you hold out for a hundred percent, you invariably create the kind of uh, situation where there's no cooperation in the future. Um, now, does that make me a compromiser? I suppose. Does that make me less than pure? Sure. But, you know, in a legislature full of people like Laura Reinbold, uh, who it's my way or the highway, uh, you know, if you know, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to light myself on fire on the Capitol steps. That is not a good environment in which to reach a just and satisfactory conclusion. Um, you know, the governor... He always says, oh, my priority is getting the permanent fund dividend thing. But he always tempers it. I mean, he doesn't think he does. But he's always giving out mixed messages about, oh, this is important, this is important, this is important, everything. And he never basically does what a lot of politicians do. Look, my number one thing is and I'm going to put all my chips on that, uh, like on the roulette wheel, on on red, and go for it. Um, he's, always, he's easily distracted. Uh, is that leadership? Um, you know, the Speaker of the House is, is 
is a creature of a very kind of unusual coalition. Great gal, you know. Um, there isn't a kind of firm leadership there. Um, you know, in the Senate right now, Peter Machicki's wound up where he was, but, you know, is Tommy the Bee really running the Senate? In some ways, he is. Um, we're in a tough patch in terms of real firm leadership. This is not the era where Clem Tillian could twist people's arm right out of their socket. And, you know, you didn't have a congenial guy like Jay Hammond. You didn't even have a technically adept administrator like Sean Parnell. I can't believe I'm nostalgic for Sean Parnell, but at least he paid attention and worked for an honest eight hours a day. Right. It's not something you can say about the current governor. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm as frustrated as the next guy uh, with this thing. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how we get over this hump, this hump of, business as usual. And you just named a lot of the players that are part of the problem. You you can throw Burt Stedman and a few others into the mix because they're the ones that are basically holding everything to account and holding the ship basically uh, in the direction of business as usual and onto the rocks that we can see coming, but nobody wants to call back on. So, I mean, I, I'm with you on that. So we're going to let both of you go here, uh, 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 just let you off the, off the rain, so to speak, in the next segment. And I just want you to tell people, how do we apply everything that you've talked about for now? And uh, and then we'll have you back on uh, later on to talk more about this. It's the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like uh, this video. Share this video. Like and share the show page. Hit subscribe. Ring the bell. Let's do it. Okay, uh, continuing now, one final segment. Uh, Joe Geldhoff and Donna Ardwin are our guests, and we're going to get back to them here in just one second. But before we do that, I do have to mention our newest sponsor on the program, which is, of course, Bivy. From your friends over there at Satellite West, uh, you know, this is the affordable option. If you want to have satellite communications, but maybe you just can't pop for the full Pivotel satellite phone. Maybe it's Maybe you don't need something quite that comprehensive. Maybe you just need something for that just-in-case kind of moment. Well, that's what the baby stick does. It's the most feature-rich SBD, not silent but deadly, but short-burst data device on the market. It essentially turns your cell phone into a satellite phone. Now, I'm holding up my baby stick here, and it's like two inches by three and a half, something like that. It's, you know, it's half the size of my cell phone. I have it in my pocket. If I need it, I can turn it on. It's got five days of battery life, uh, continuous days of usage. Um, if you're using 10-minute tracking, which is what I'm using right now. Um, but it, it basically can give you connectivity anywhere, anytime, with anyone. If you can see the sky, this thing talks to the sky, and it turns your cell phone into a satellite email system and a satellite text messaging system and a satellite mapping system and a satellite weather forecasting system. You can get regular forecasts. You can get aviation forecasts for you pilots, for you guys who are mariners. You can get marine forecasts. It's got all the maps of Alaska updated. You can drop pins on yourself so the people who are tracking you know where you are uh, so that you can do done automatically. It's got a button on it for check-in where you set a check-in message and you can just mash the button and it automatically drops a pin that says, hey, everything's fine. You know, 10.05, all is well. And it's got an SOS button that says, hey, I'm hurt. Here's my location. Somebody come get me. You could send text messages to other cell phones. You can send emails. Uh, as far as cost of entry, it is the lowest cost of entry at $199. 
You can get the minimum plan is only $14 a month. The the biggest plan is $45 a month with unlimited usage, which is the one that I have. I'm buying one of these for my wife and getting her the minimum plan because she's not really going to need it, but she can throw it in the glove box. And if another 2018 earthquake happens and all the cell phone towers go down or are completely full with congestion, which is what happened back in 2018 for me, um, she could at least text me and let me know that she's okay. She could tell me what's going on. We can talk back and forth. Uh, I mean, as far as no activation fees, plus all the rollover stuff, if you don't use it, it rolls over and just keeps building up, and they're offering more expanding features in the future, this is an amazing device. So if you have a car or a boat, an ATV, a plane, snow machine, train, submarine, whatever it is you're driving, you should have one in the glove box. And it doesn't matter if you're a hunter or a snow machiner or a soccer mom, this could be that peace of mind that you need. If you want to find out more, you go to SatelliteWest.com and you click on the Bivy logo there, or you can go to your local dealer, Arctic Fire and Safety in Fairbanks, South Central Radar on the Spit in Homer, Safe and Sound in Wasilla, Anchorage, and Soldotna, Communications North in Seward, Lundy Marine Electronics, uh, Marine Electronics in Dutch Harbor, and Radar Alaska in Kodiak. Thank you to Bivy for providing uh, sponsorship of the show. We're going to be start doing some texting with this, so we're going to have a text in line. It's going to be the Bivy text in line. You're going to be able to send me text during the show if you don't uh, want to do the chat room or whatever else, and that's going to be fun. And we're going to get that set up here in the next week or so. But Bibby, SatelliteWest.com, go figure it out. All right, uh, Joe Geldhoff, Donna Ardwin, our guest, the final segment. Here we go. Guys, how do we take everything that you've talked about this morning, and this is just like a thumbnail, it's like taking a sip from a fire hose, blowing our lips off, but how do we take what you've said and how do we apply it? Joe, we'll start with you. How does the average citizen apply what you're talking about now? Well, the average citizen needs to get out of their anger mode, that I'm just I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it, and, and engages in reactionary politics. They have to come up with a construct, you know, a political construct that works for them. I'll suggest one that's really simple because it works for me. Is the person, the candidate, because that's what you're talking about here. How do we elect people in this little democracy up here who reflect what we think are our personal values and consistent with Alaska? I would say, however you get there, are you a citizen first or are you a government first? Are you a person who thinks that we should be engaged in subsidizing uh, big mega projects first? Or are we going to take care of our citizens' needs first? There's a lot of play in there on how to do that. But you know, I'm offering a, a solution instead of just saying, that person's a jerk, get rid of them. Um, the, one of the problems with electing new officials who are just mad as hell, and, and we've been doing that quite a bit lately, is they have no experience. They arrive you know, at the Capitol, they're untrained, and they are easily manipulated by people who have experience. And I'm not just talking about other legislators or people in the executive branch. You know, They are putty in the hands of lobbyists and big institutions, um, people who have an agenda. So the, the challenge in a democracy is to elect people who are, are, are have solid values that put individual people first, and I would say won't be misled down these hot stove or hot button issues that, that are part of the culture wars. Um, the, the role of government in Alaska is to provide essential services, keep the roads plowed, find the kind of candidate who is going to dig into what is essential, who's going to deliver services efficiently, 
because uh, we waste a tremendous amount of money, and send them down to to do the bi- people's business. Right. Uh, if that sounds uh, simplistic, I guess it is. I could right. be very cynical, but it, that's really what you have to do. Um, okay, uh, Donna, uh, your thoughts on how we apply all the things that we've been talking about this morning, both with Ben and you guys and everything else. How does the average person apply this? Well, I just wrap it up with saying you can be mad as hell, but also be optimistic. Um, when I went to work in Alaska and I've gone to work in many other states, I know that um, good leadership can bring the optimism to change a state and really turn that wheel. We see it happen over and over again. I mean, Mississippi elected a new governor last year. He's already overhauled the education system, went to the best scores in the country, working to eliminate his income tax. Um, look what's already happening in Virginia, you know, with the change in leadership. So be mad as hell, but also stay optimistic that you can change the trajectory of the state. Uh, you know, and I, and I just, before I give you guys the floor here for final thoughts, I mean, I, Joe, I understand what you're saying. We don't need to be have people who are hotheads just going down there trying to tear the world up. But at the same time, we have to have that passion. Otherwise, they will become subsumed by this and uh, I mean, and become pod people even faster than what you're talking about, I think. In, in my opinion, you've got to have kind of that righteous anger to shield you from that. Um, but I'm going to give you guys uh, final thoughts here, just under two minutes. So uh, we'll keep it brief. We'll start with uh, we'll start ladies first this time. We'll start with Donna for final thoughts before we move to Joe. Um, well, yeah, stay optimistic and, um, you know, bring people in who aren't not only mad as hell, but also, you know, have experience, experience. And, and you've brought a lot of people into the legislature who have done that, um, have that. You had a terrific guest on today. So I think and even when he was new, he had experience. So um, I wouldn't say that, you know, rule out anybody who's new. You need new players, um, but definitely bring in, you know, more of the Ben Carpenters of the world. Okay. Uh, Joe, uh, about a minute here. Bringing in new people whose values are steeped in Alaska, by which I mean we help each other, uh, who, who do have a, a, a sunny, bright, optimistic outlook about the future of our state, is absolutely critical. But what does it mean to be an Alaskan? I mean, it's wonderful rivers, great mountains, stupendous wildlife, everything, but it was about helping people and kind of taking care of yourself, your family, and, and your community. You elect those kind of people, they'll find a way. Um, you elect people who think it's really fun to be governor. I like being governor more than, than governing, which is sort of hard work. It, it's a disaster. But, you know, working together, we can we can do this. But it's got to be based on, on the solid values of Alaska that make this one of the greatest places to live in the world. Joe Geldhoff, Donna Ardwin, Permanent Fund Defenders, thank you both for coming on board and joining us this morning. We appreciate your thoughts. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again here soon. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be on your show. You bet. Thank you, Michael. Hold the line for just one second, guys. All right, folks, we're out of time tomorrow. Mike Shower on our uh, program. We'll continue that. More discussions. And then Friday is Firearms Friday. Please be kind to one another. Love one another. Live well. Do all that. That's the best revenge. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. All right, one final one final crack here, just because we still have them on. And first of all, I got to take a little issue with Joe. Uh, I don't know if it's because you're a Juno Republican or what, but you use the word democracy, and that just that's a hot button for me. I didn't want to get into it on the air because we didn't have enough time. But I just got to say, I mean, we are a constitutional republic, and even though we have a democratic form of government, anytime somebody bandies the word democracy about it, just it rankles me. So uh, I'll give you the chance to respond to that as you hit final thoughts here on the way out the door, Joe. 
Oh, I, I, I freely acknowledge we are, we are Republican and a Republican form of government, small r. Um, I'm good with that. I am, I'm very big on limited forms of government, not just uh, mob rule. Uh, whether it's Donald Trump sending people to the Capitol or the Democrats saying we need uh, more money for the kids. I appreciate that. Uh, Donna, final thoughts here as I let you go. Um, well, I'll go back to uh, budget's not a math problem, and income tax is only going to make it worse. So, you know, bring in new leadership who knows how to solve a problem um, with taking into account what's going to happen. What's the future of the Alaska that we want to have and make make the tough decisions and do it through strong leadership well we need strong leadership and we need leadership that communicates i mean if i've had one criticism of this administration and i've said it right to their face and and to the various folks who are in it you guys need to get better at communicating your message because as joe mentioned earlier it seems like he's all for something and then he gets muddled up on something else we need that communication we need it to be strong we need it to have a firm voice we need good leadership and i couldn't agree more with that statement uh, uh you know out of the gate on that so well, folks, thank you so much for coming on board. Again, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, don't be strangers. We'll look for you here uh, sometime in the near future, okay? Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, Donna. Talk Th- to you soon. All right. Thank you, Joe and Donna. We appreciate it. Folks, <clears throat> we literally are out of time. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense. Liberty-based. Free-thinking radio. terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show